0: Every year, my investors will call me and say, hey, one day when I sell my business, I'm going to do more of what you do. Like, I'm going to be more generous. And I always say, hey, all due respect, you're not going to do it. And I always laugh that rich people aren't used to feedback. They're like, what, what do you mean? And I'm like, you're not going to do it because you're not doing it now. And if you can't do it now when you have less, you get $100 million in your bank account. You think it's going to make your life easier, actually have more control of your life. And so I always tell them, like, you have to start today being generous. One of the great joys of my life has
1: been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get at investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you wanna know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com where we talk about why we've been investing in class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to FortCapitalLP.com. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital. Or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. Let's start kind of growing up in Memphis. When I reached out to you and we were talking about how this conversation might go, you thought it would be important for folks to know how you grew up.
0: Yeah. So I'm a native of Memphis. I did not grow up on the right side of tracks in Memphis. So I grew up in North Memphis, one of five kids. My dad really never could hold a job. And so my mom had grown up in the projects in Memphis. And so, you know, she was just trying to provide a better life for us than she had had. But, you know, she was high school educated, trying to raise five kids, working nights, you know, trying to be a great mom and trying to provide for a family. And, you know, I always call my family the working poor. It's like there's this perception in the world that most people that are poor are lazy and There is a segment of the population that's true, but people like my mom, you know, she was working as hard as she could, but because of her education, she could work as hard as she could, but she could barely provide. So, you know, we didn't starve to death as kids, but I always say like anything outside of normal day-to-day bills was an emergency. So if the air conditioner went out and it was hundred degrees in Memphis in the summer, like we're sweating. It's like, unless God provided the money and through a person giving it to us, like, we're just like, it's going to be hot for a while until, because there's not a thousand dollars to fix the air conditioner.
1: Why couldn't your dad hold the job?
0: You know, he just, he just had a hard time, honestly. Like he would just, if things got tough, like he just couldn't push through and he, everybody's got their story. His dad had died when he was a baby and he was raised by a young mom. And I think she just babied him, frankly. And yep. So anytime things got tough, wherever he was working, he just quit. Oh, the man's not being fair to me. I'm gonna quit. I'll get another job, and and he just wouldn't. And it's just he just kind of let life defeat him. Frankly,
1: do you think you knew that as you were young? Did you recognize that, or was it later in life, looking back, that that's how he was?
0: I mean, I think from pretty early on, like I knew that something was off because, okay. like, in my family, it was like. Hey, you're working. Like we we ran a family budget. Like kids are getting jobs, like raking lease, <laughs> grass. Like it's like you need clothes, you gotta buy them. you need a car one day, you're gonna buy it. Like, you know, my mom was like, You gotta go to college, but like there's no money. So scholarships, loans, like you're gonna have to figure it out by the time you get there. So very early on, we knew that it was there was no financial means in my family.
1: Now looking back on it how do you think about your mom and all that?
0: Oh gosh. I mean, my mom is a hero to me. My mom actually works for me now. So uh,
1: (laughs) really? (laughs) Yeah.
0: For the last seven years, my mom is my director of corporate culture. So uh, she actually works in my office three days a week. And so it's been really fun. We moved my mom. She needed to retire like seven years ago. My little brother lives in Nashville too. And I was like, mom, you need to move to Nashville. Like you can hang out with our kids and, you know, we can invest in you and you need to retire. And she's like, well, I need, I do need to retire, but I don't have any money. And so I was like, well, we'll help you. And she's like, I I can't take your money. She's like, can I have a job? So I said, sure. She's like, she's like, one day you'll get this, but you don't want to like take money from your kids. And I was like, it'd be a blessing. You've given up everything for us. Like be an honor to help you. And she's like, well, just let me work for you and then you can pay me. So, and she's like, "What do you? What, do, what can I do?" I said, "Uh, we'll just call you the director of corporate culture, and we'll figure it out."
1: How has it impacted you? Probably more than it's impacted her. That's one of the coolest things I've ever heard.
0: I mean, it's a blessing for me because she's the first person you see when you walk in my office. So it's like fun because I had a mentor ask me this other day. He's like, he asked me the same question. I was like, he's like, that must be amazing for your mom, considering how you guys grew up to get to see every day tangibly like your success and what God has allowed you to do. And I was like, you know, you're right. I mean, every day she gets to watch come in this office, this company that we've built and gets to see the impact we're having through our businesses. And she gets to see it practically firsthand. So it's been a lot of fun for me because I know how much joy it's brought her.
1: That's so awesome. You said the working poor, like if you look at today's world, like even where we are today in today's economy and the cost of you know, inflation and what it's run, it's not cheap to live life right now. Can you just go a little bit deeper on kind of how maybe the way you grew up gives you perception on what, how you look at America today? Because I'll give you the spoiler alert now, Mike is one of the most generous people uh, that you'll meet and that has come on this podcast and has really taken a big chunk of his life and devoted it to being generous to others. But I want to like sow the seeds a little deeper of like how you view the world because of how you grew up and how you look at several different types of people, but especially like the working poor.
0: Yeah, I I have a huge heart for people that are, you know, especially today. I mean, it's expensive for me and you to live, but fortunately, we have a financial margin in our life. Like I can complain about the cost of groceries or gas, but I mean, frankly, it just doesn't affect my life. But if you grew up like I did, like there was there was one bucket of money every month. And so if groceries were more expensive, that money's got to come from somewhere. It's like, we're either going to eat less healthy foods or we're not going to buy as much gas or, you know, we only had one pot of money. So I have a huge heart for people that are out there working 40, 50 hours a week in a factory or a fast food restaurant. And it's like, I tell my friends that with money a lot is like, we can all complain about inflation, but frankly, it hasn't really affected us. But like these people are dying. Like they're, they can't work more because they also have kids to raise and, you know, th- things to do, go to church, whatever. But like they literally have one pot of money and all this inflation. It's like, I mean, I don't know about you, Chris, but our grocery bills doubled, and it's not because we're buying anything different every week. It's like for those people, that's an emergency. And it's like. That the system doesn't work for them in the current environment, and yeah, they've gotten some raises, probably hourly wage, but it hasn't made up for the expense of things.
1: Do you have any idea how this
0: gets solved? It's definitely not going to be the government. That's a spoiler alert. Yeah. I uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm glad that wages are going up. Like yeah. people need to make more money. Like people need to be given a living wage if they're willing to work. But I don't I don't know what it's going to take to to solve this, I mean, you know, I wish prices would come down, but it's, it's hard for people out there because they feel poor every day, even though they've gotten a raise at work.
1: Yep. You said, uh, through a crazy story that only God could ordain, my family was provided a house at way below market. Can you tell that story?
0: Yeah, this is a a great real estate story. So the trajectory, when I was 10 years old, the trajectory of my family's life changed. So we lived in, you could look it up, Frazier, It's uh, most famous for a great rapper named Fraser Boy, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) you don't want to be from an area of town where the most famous person ever was a rapper. But so my mom is a person of faith and so am I. And, you know, this neighborhood started to get really rough. And so she's like, we got to get out of here. My parents had been given this house because my dad had grown up in it. And so, you know, they knew they could sell the house. We sold the house for $30,000. In 1990, so okay. I mean that's in today the house is worth. I looked it up recently; it's like worth like twenty seven thousand. Okay. So <laughs> it wasn't a good investment for the buyer, but the neighborhood's not gotten any better. So anyway, my mom, you know, back then there's no online, so she'd look in the paper classified ads every weekend, and she just prayed, God give us a house. Like we got to get out of here, and financially, just mathematically, we could have moved to an area that's a little better, but still not great. And there's an area in Memphis called Germantown, and when I was that age, like those were the best public schools in Memphis. And my mom would like pray, God, get us in Germantown. But like it was a math problem. Houses were two to three hundred thousand in this area. And somehow she figured out between selling that house that they had been given and whatever she made, like she could afford a mortgage on a ninety thousand dollar house. So one weekend she's flipping through and sees a house in Germantown for ninety thousand dollars. So she like packs us all in the station wagon. My grandmother's in town drives us out there always joked like everything in real estate's generally misrepresented but it was like a burnt outside of a duplex like it was like totally misrepresented it was like and she was just so frustrated she's like i thought this was going to be an answer to prayer like you know i i just knew this was supposed to happen so she leaves and she takes a wrong turn and she ends up like a you know one way in one way out neighborhood and there's a for sale by owner sign in the yard. My grandmother's like, Hey, I think you ought to take down that number and call. She's like, we're never going to be able to afford it. This was just a dream. Like, it's not going to happen. My grandmother's like, well, stop. And my grandmother writes down the phone number, puts it in my mom's coat pocket. It's winter time. And so like two weeks later, my mom's wearing the same jacket. She pulls this number out. and's like, I feel like I should call this person. It's crazy. They're probably gonna tell me it's 250,000, but it's like, I feel like I should call She calls this lady. The lady says, hey, we got a couple months behind on my mortgage because my husband lost his job. The good news is he just got a new job in Alaska. But I got to move. I got to sell this house. My mom tells her our whole sob story. The lady's like, hey, we owe $90,000 on this house. If you'll buy me two plane tickets to Alaska, I'll let you assume my mortgage. You can have my house for free. You just pick up the payments because back then you could just assume a person's mortgage. Yeah. She said, if you just pick up the payments next month, you can have my house. You just got to buy me two plane tickets because I don't have a lot of money. The coolest part of the story is my mom worked at that season of life, she was answering phones for Delta Airlines at night. <laughs> oh so she goes to her boss and says, hey, can you give me two free tickets? So for two free plane tickets, we were given a house, and which totally changed our lives because we hadn't been going to great public schools. And I just, I'm very passionate about inner city education because I saw just like the high school I was zoned for is literally, you know, bottom 3% of high schools in Memphis. The one I got to go to is top three. And like, it just opened me and my siblings eyes to like what was possible in life because we were around people whose parents were professionals and successful. And, you know, we still didn't have a lot of money, but we were, we had access and our teachers were pushing us. And, you know, so it's like, it just changed our whole view of the world.
1: Can you expand on that just a little more clarity, how not just the education of like okay, everybody's going to take a math class. What are the other things involved in, in school? Like you mentioned parents that are motivating and what were some of the stark differences between an inner city school and and going to a good public school in a better neighborhood?
0: We, well, you know, like at my high school, I would have a buddy whose dad was a lawyer. So, you know, you go to like hang out with your buddy and you're down there talking to his dad and he sees some potential and he's like, you could be a lawyer too. And I'm like, really, how do you do it? And how do you, where, how do you go to school? And how'd you get in the law school? And, you know, so it's just like, I would just meet these people and they saw potential in me and they would spend so much time like talking to me. And I was like, it just opened my horizon because I think if I would have gone to Fraser high school, it's the great debate at family events. It's like, would we all, would I be, would you be interviewing me today if I went to Fraser high school? Probably not because there I would have been in school drug people's parents or drug dealers are incarcerated or best case scenario, factory worker. And it's like I would have thought, okay, I'm supposed to be working at the, there's a big tire plant in Fraser. It's like, yep, that's the best I can do is be a manager at the Firestone plant at Fraser. Like I will have really crushed life if I end up with that job where at the high school I was able to go to, it's like, man, I could be a doctor. I'd be on the Supreme Court. You know, it's like there was no like I would just meet people that expanded. And my teachers were like, hey, you have a lot of potential. Like, you can do whatever you want.
1: Was there an inflection point that you can even remember where you thought, okay, I'm on a different trajectory now? Was it moving into that house or was it was it a conversation you had with somebody or was there something you can tie back to to go, my life changed when this happened?
0: I think it was really just teachers investing in me. I was good in school. And so I actually was on a path to be a doctor, okay. uh, which I know your dad was, but <laughs> I, uh, but I was good in school. So like teachers were like, Hey, you have a lot of potential. And then my dad, because his just career trials and tribulations, my dad was always like, you guys need to be professionals, like lawyers, doctors, engineers, architects, like go to college. We'd all done pretty well in school, go to graduate school. And then like be a medical doctor because you're always like a doctor will always have an income, always have a paycheck. So I think that's what really changed for me. It was like, my mom pushed us really hard you kids can do this. Like America America's the greatest country ever. You can do whatever you want. Just work your butt off. And so, and then I think just teachers investing in my life saying, Hey, you have a lot of potential, like yeah, keep applying yourself, keep focused. Like you can do this.
1: So you did go to college.
0: Yeah. I went, uh, for those of you, uh, west of the Mississippi, I went to the real UT <laughs> University of Tennessee, Knoxville.
1: Okay. <laughs> is that where you wanted to go or is that?
0: That was really the only financial, I mean, in-state was really the only thing because I was having to pay for school myself. So between scholarships and having a job all throughout college and, you know, some student loans, it's like I could have gone to other colleges, but financially UT was really the only option.
1: Okay. All right. So you go to college and then you make your way into the real estate industry immediately?
0: Well, I was pre-med my first couple of years and I had a great story. Like the way I ended up being the entrepreneur and getting in real estate was I think it was my sophomore year of college I did a fraternity at UT also SE and we were home for like fall break and my one of my buddies like called and said hey you want to go play golf I'm like how much does golf cost and he's like uh we'll just go to the country club and he's like we'll put it on my dad I'm like free golf I'm in and so we go it's like a Thursday afternoon and his dad's on the driving range and I was like oh Mr. Juvenetti what are you doing here like why aren't you at work and he's like well Called told me you were coming in town and he's like, I wouldn't miss the opportunity to hang out with you guys. Like I just took the afternoon off and I was like, where do you work? He's like, I work for myself. And, you know, cause even at Germantown, like a lot of my friends, dads had eight to fives. I didn't know many entrepreneurs. And I was like, hold on, you can just take a day off. Like, and he's like, I was like, you don't have a boss. And he's like, well, I just worked a little extra last night. So I could come play golf with you guys today. I'm like, that's unbelievable. Like I didn't even know people had that kind of flexibility in their life. (laughs) So once that happened, I was like, man, and I was like sitting in labs all the time. I was like, I'm going to be in school for 12 more years to be a medical doctor. I was like, I don't think this is the path for me. So I immediately switched to finance. And then I got obsessed with like the financial markets and going to New York to work on wall street. And so the rest of college, I worked for financial firms in Knoxville. And then I was like, I'm going to New York. That's the major leagues. And and I did that. I went up there and interned my senior year. And then I went back to UT because I'd switched pre-med to business. I lost hours. And so my college mentor was like, what are you going to do? You can go back to New York. And I said, yeah, I'm going to go work for those guys. And he's like, you already have a job. Why It's your last semester? You have nothing to lose. Why don't you go intern doing something else other than finance? Cause that's all you've ever wanted to do. And I was like, well, I don't really know what I would do. He's like, you have any other interests? I said, well, I think real estate investing is interesting because the passive, he's like, well, go work for my friend. And like two months into that internship, I was like, this is so much better than being an analyst on wall street. (laughs) Like, I was like, this is so much better than sitting in a cubicle, 16 hours a day, crunching numbers. And so that's how I ended up in real estate.
1: Okay. So you get into real estate. Can you just walk me through a little bit of what it was like to go through 08, 09? Because I think that kind of set the foundation for your career quite a bit.
0: Yes, it did. I got in the industry in 2003. And so I got recruited. I started out in brokerage, got recruited by a client to to do retail development. And then, well, the financial crisis hit. So I'm the young hustler, I'm a partner in the business, but he's got the money and I'm putting the deals together. Well, One day he calls and we didn't have the money anymore. And what had happened to him was, is he had mainly borrowed from like large regional national lenders. And when the economy got tough, he had a lot of liquidity and wealth. They started leaning on him. And so they don't go after the guy that has no money. They go after the guys that's a cash grab. And so they started calling his loan, trying to get him to pay down, pay off loans. And I watched him over a two year period, just, frankly, go out of business. Yep. And it was tough. I mean, it's, I mean, my whole career is the result of working with him through that season because I just learned, I mean, I always thought like if you borrowed money, as long as you're paying your mortgage, like you and the bank were good. I didn't realize that there was all these technical defaults and loan documents where they could, you know, call your loan just because they didn't like where the economy was. So, I, I mean, I've learned a million lessons.
1: You said something at lunch, you said, I don't think We would have gone through that if he had taken money from maybe more community or regional banks. Can you expand on that?
0: Totally. I mean, our firm now, we only borrow from community banks because I said, I want to know the CEO of every bank I borrow from because what, what Bob Talbot and he just actually passed, he's a wonderful man. I owe so much to him. He recently passed away. But like what happened when I worked for Bob was, is, you know, they would call, SunTrust would call and say, well, the credit guy in Atlanta said, we got to do this. I'm your relationship guy. You know, I never do this to you, but this guy in Atlanta, we're like, we'll go to Atlanta and meet with him. It's like, no, he doesn't meet with people. It's yeah. like in a black box, you know, where I, I always say this in all due respect to my lenders is like, I spend more time interviewing my lenders than they interview me because I was like, we'll find a, a good partner. But like, I need to make sure you guys will be a good partner if we had a recession because I'm not going to be put out of business just because you guys have your own selfish motivation. And you have liquidity issues or whatever. So you find some little technicality in my loan document because you know inevitably they're gonna call you and say, We need you to pay this off. It's it's not gonna be in a good market where you're like, sure, I'll just move it to the next bank. It's gonna yeah. be when the skies are as dark as they can be and nobody else wants it. So yeah. we do not borrow money from large banks. So for all your large bank listeners, I'm not a customer. You're not a customer.
1: <laughs> you're a community lender hauler. Yes. I met a guy. He's a billionaire and he, I tweeted this, like it was like maybe the first thing that ever kind of went viral on Twitter, it clearly struck a nerve. But it was basically, I asked him, what is one way that you've made money that most people don't think about? And he said, anything I can sell where the buyer is willing to put in basically the deed that he has the first right of refusal to buy it back he's made more money buying things back the second time than he because most people sell in times of distress where there's a lot of forced sellers in times of distress and so he his answer to me didn't miss a blink he's like try and get a rofer on anything now a lot of buyers won't let you put that in the documents and what he said is often then you you also don't have to sell to him but he goes more often than not people will and more often than not when you buy it back The the second, the second bite of the apple is a better one.
0: Yeah, no doubt.
1: So anyway, I still have never done that, by the way.
0: I haven't either, but it's a good idea for me what's coming.
1: It is a good idea. What do you think's coming? What What are you thinking about the market right now? Explain a little bit about what you do.
0: Yeah, I mean, my day job is buying value-add shopping centers around the country. Yeah. So mainly focused on discount retail. So think like Big Lots, Planet Fitness, Goodwill, just kind of blue-collar retailers. Yep. And, um, and then we'll talk about the hotel business later, but I do yeah. that on the side. But yeah, my day job is just buying shopping centers that are run down, bad ownership, financially distressed, and then we'll go turn them around. Sometimes we turn them into medical, but generally it's discount
1: retail. What do you do to turn them around?
0: I mean, frankly, we just put the capital in them that they need. Like yeah. we have to go buy them on a good enough basis. But like generally we're buying from people that might've owned it for 20 or 30 years. And always I said, like, they look at that as a dollar put in that shopping center is a dollar out of their pocket. Right. So, you know. In El Paso, you might drive by and you go, man, that's a pretty nice area. Good shopping center. Why does the thing look like a bomb went off, half empty? It's like probably had a horrible owner and they let the roof leak for 10 years and finally the tenants are like, I'm moving across town or I'm moving across the street. And so then it becomes financially distressed because half their tenants leave. And so we'll come in, re-roof it, re-landscape it, redo the parking lots. And then we have a lot of national relationships where we'll say, hey, the demographics or place or, you know, the data will say, you guys need to be here. Here's why we did a store with you in this market. This is the same market. It's just in another state. Like yeah. you guys ought to do this.
1: And what's going on in the market is things are leasing pretty well.
0: Yeah. I mean, our occupancy is as high as it's ever been. That's awesome. You know, I laugh for my current company. I started in 2009 and I did retail four years before that. So I'm 18 years into retail. And for 17 years, I've had to defend my existence to investors and to banks. Like, Amazon's going to put everybody out of business. I was like, our whole thesis is we do not want to compete with Amazon. Like, right. that's my whole thing. Like, see, of course, some of the stuff of our shopping centers you can buy on Amazon, but it's about 30 or 40% more expensive. Yeah, And most Americans can't afford that because yeah. like... When I'm raising capital, my investors are like, everybody's got prime. I'm like, no, everybody you know has prime. Like yeah. a lot of Americans can't afford a hundred and fifty dollar prime membership plus paying 30% premium on all their stuff. And then we do a lot of service-based, you know, retail haircuts, working out, like things you can't do on the internet.
1: Wait, so Amazon's more expensive than ground level retail?
0: Yeah, my wife thinks I'm crazy. I'm like, hey, go to Walmart and tell me how much this, this, and this is. So, you know, Amazon acquired all of us as customers. But like if you price compare now, they've they've hooked us all on convenience. So it's like it's like great to click today and it'll be on my doorstep tomorrow, but you are paying a premium for that because of shipping. Where if you go to Big Lots or Dollar General or Dollar Tree, like that toothpaste is 30, 40% less.
1: Did you know that? No. Where do you buy your toothpaste?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not, any yeah. <laughs> Not any longer. Not any
1: longer. Okay, but you'll buy an empty box in old Planet Fitness. That's usually how many square feet?
0: How big is a Planet Fitness? 15000
1: Okay, and then will you try and release it as one tenant or you'll break it up into two or three tenants? Or it depends.
0: Generally, the assets we are buying, we're trying to buy ones that have already been split up. Because with today's construction costs, like going... Now, we had a heck of a run redoing Kmarts, but we were buying those things super cheap. But, like, putting three electrical meters in, three sets of plumbing, three demising walls, like, you have to get it super cheap, which we were able to do because Kmart was going through bankruptcy. People were just, like, selling it for the land value. But, like, today in a more normalized market, we're trying to buy centers where somebody 10 or 20 years ago spent 10 or 20 years ago construction money to split those things up because most deals will not pencil if I have to go. Because, you know, a lot of my tenants are paying single-digit rent, so you can't pencil subdividing it up
1: tell me the Kmart story again okay Bas- what was your k-mart run basically k-mart was just unloading stores and you were just buying them all we, up
0: we had a heck of a run from like i don't know i lose track of time but i mean i don't know if it was like 16 you know 2015 to 2019 or you know somewhere in that run but you know Kmart was going bankrupt i mean you know, they always called it like the longest running bankruptcy ever. Cause it was like every year if you're like Kmart's done and they'd somehow survive, (laughs) Eddie Lampert will like bail them out for another year. And then, but we had, I mean, we weren't the only one that did it, but pretty early on we took the risk to buy a vacant Kmart and split it up into a three tenant building. We're like, Oh, we can make this work. Like we knew we needed to be between 20 and 30 bucks a foot on the purchase. We knew exactly where our rents would be. And we knew the construction costs and it took some other people a little longer just to figure it out. Then we had a bunch of competitors jump in and I'm not saying there was other people doing it, but we had a great run where we did probably 12 or, you know, so Kmart's right in a row, same tenant lineup basically. And it's just, we had a great form and we built a mousetrap and then we're like, all right, let's go do as many of these as we can.
1: Are you kind of facing the same thing we are in industrial where fundamentals are good, transactions are just dead? Totally. Did you buy anything this last year?
0: We bought four projects this past year, but I mean, it's, there's still a bit ass spread. I mean, sellers are, you know, they're not at 20, 21, 22 values, but they're not where they need to be today. So they've come like in the middle and, you know, unless they have a motivation to sell, they're not selling. We have bought, we've had a little bit of success buying for some public reads because they're price agnostic and they're like they're very, they're just business people. They're like, Hey, we got four offers. They're all around the same range. You guys are a good buyer. You have a quicker close. We'll take you.
1: And you buy all over the country. Yeah. Is there anywhere you won't buy?
0: California. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm not going to buy in markets where there's this huge political risk for like a business friendly environment.
1: Yeah. All right. You started the company in 2009. You've got the greatest head of corporate culture that you could ask for. Did when you started the business, and I think this is where we're going to spend a, a good chunk of time. Did you know that you were the mission of your company was going to be to build America's most generous real estate company?
0: No, I. I mean, frankly, in 2009, I was just trying to survive. I mean, yeah. I've always chosen to be personally generous, but I lost everything in the last, the prior business, like. You know, me and my partner trying to, like, keep everything going. We were having to fund everything out of cash. So all the money I had made in my early career, we gave it all back to the banks at the end. And so when I started in 9 I mean, I was broke. Like, fortunately, I was still single. So my overhead was very low. But, like, I, I went and raised some capital, paid myself literally the littlest salary ever just so I could pay rent. And I was like, so I was just, I didn't have any money to give when I started.
1: Okay. So when did you decide that that was going to be the mission of the company? I think, like, walk us into that. Was it circumstances? When did you decide that you were going to spend the better part of the rest of your life being more generous than you were at Taker?
0: Well, I mean, I had been very generous out of college. I mean, by God's grace, I had been successful in brokerage and then the first couple of years doing retail development. And so I had been generous, then I lost it all. And then, you know, the biggest lesson I learned through that season was, is like, the amount of money in my bank account did not affect my happiness because I had gone from being poor to doing extremely well in my 20s to losing everything. And I was like, you know, as long as you do have your relationships, your family, your health, I was like, that was a great because I always said I didn't care about money. But then I practically learned that in 2008 and 2009, because I had had no financial stability as a kid. Then for a season, I just I was helping everybody, my siblings, my mom. And then it was like, then I gave all that back. And so I was like, once I start making money again, I'm going to just be very generous with it. I was like, because it doesn't matter how much money I have, because I've now learned the lesson very realistically. Like it doesn't affect my happiness one bit.
1: When you think of generosity, like what does it mean to you?
0: Well, I think, you know, everybody that listens to this has been given a different amount of, you know, things to steward in their life. So it's like, I think being generous, it's not a, a an amount you give every year. It's a percentage or like you're giving where it actually affects you because there's people that can give a million dollars a year Well, they don't even, a million dollars is nothing to them. Yeah. Where somebody giving 30% of their income that makes 200,000 a year, they feel that. They actually have to make some personal sacrifices to give that money away where the billionaire who writes the million dollar check to United Way every year, like they made more than that in interest.
1: Right. Okay. But so you lost everything. Were you generous when you did, when you had lost everything with time or.
0: Yeah, time. Totally. Totally. Yes. I gave away a lot of time because so, I didn't have any money at that point. I mean, I still probably tithed 10% to my church, but it was on a very small number. But I mean, I was still giving, but I didn't, you know, I was paying myself, I think $30,000 a year at that point when I started the business.
1: I think you're the third person on here that I did 30,000 too, which is 2,500 a month. Yeah. That's the easiest way. I did 30,000 a year <laughs> for like three years when I first started. And I think you're the third fourth person that's come on that did the 30,000 year thing. It's really just 2,500 a month. <laughs> that's right. That's kind of how you get there.
0: Yeah. And just like as a bachelor, like I guess this is, that's just what it took. It could have been 35,000, but it was like 30,000 paid my bills and I was happy with it.
1: Okay. When you say I'm on a mission though, to build the most generous real estate company, what is that actually going to mean to you like how do you actually do that in practice so it's easy to say i'm generous to, but to put your kind of company out there obviously your team members know that was this a decision you made that this is who we're going to be did it just kind of slowly happen over time and one day you looked up and you're like oh we're pretty generous we'll just do more of this or was it a conscious effort to make this such a profound statement for the company
0: well part of my story was is 6 years ago through a lot of life. My my oldest brother passed away of a lifelong health struggle. I had my first child within 90 days. Like I always joke that my counselor's kids are going to go to college on me because I have so much to work through. But like, <laughs> you know, dealing with the lowest low of your life and the highest high, I'd always wanted to be a dad. It was like, I just stepped back to evaluate like, why am I put on earth? What am I here for? Because by, by six years ago, I had done well financially. And yeah. so... You know, but I was like, I used to always see this great break between like the business makes money, the business pays my family, and then we choose to be generous. But there was this big break. It's like the goal is the business goes make as much money as possible. Then we as a family choose to be really generous with what we're given, but I didn't I just saw the business as a vehicle to pay me. I went through a, I read a book called Halftime by Bob Buford, which greatly affected me. And then I went through, they have a leadership program in Dallas that's a one-year program. And through a guy named Lloyd Reeb, who's my coach, still to this day, through halftime, you know, he really helped me figure out, like, the business is my platform. Like, you know, God gave me this business to steward, and like, that is my vehicle for impact. It can impact my team members. We have a couple hundred tenants. We have a couple hundred vendors. We have fifty families that invest with us. Our hotels have fifteen thousand guests a year. He's like, you, you have the opportunity through this business to go impact tons of people so he's like you just got to run it with that lens of like this is your ministry and you need to run it accordingly so that was really when the process started we're going to build america's most generous real estate company and the business is just going to be radically generous through with our vendors with everything we touch we're going to be generous with
1: by the way we had lloyd on the podcast johnny will put it in the notes but it is a fantastic episode
0: i've listened to it it's great
1: and lloyd will be uh at the at next year's retreat actually nice. I'm spoiling that okay you have this meeting or set of meetings and he puts this on you that this is your ministry this you can make your company a generous vehicle for good walk me through like literally what happens the next days weeks like how do you actually start putting that into practice cuz it's i think where i'm getting at is it's really easy to get excited about doing things and being generous and that feel good moment, it's not actually as easy to put it into practice. It takes commitment. So like, how did you transition from this is what I want to do to I'm going to do it?
0: Well, I mean, I give Lloyd a lot of credit for this When So we had already started our hospitality business. When Airbnb came to Nashville, I used to own a bunch of rental houses with one of my friends. And we read about Airbnb and we're like, We're like, you want to try it? Sure. It's like $10,000 worth of furniture. It doesn't work out. We'll just do it as like furnished rentals. So we tried it. It was very successful. Then we converted all of our rental houses into Airbnbs. Okay. And then, but it's so inefficient to manage like 50 Airbnbs all over town. And so I told my buddy, I was like, man, I'd love to like buy a building and put a bunch of them in one building. and and run it like a hotel with a standard of service and quality. But like, we'll do a bunch of them. It'd be so much more efficient. You have one manager of the whole thing. So I had already started, we had bought a building in downtown Nashville and, and done it and kind of as a marketing thing. I mean, there's no original ideas in real estate, but you know, Tom's does like a pair for a pair and we called ours a room for a room, like rooms for rooms. So that's our charity. So we were like, we wanted to connect to the guests. Hey, if you rent a room from us, in Nashville, then we'll give away 16 nights at the homeless mission down the street. So a homeless person will have 16 nights at the shelter by you staying, you know, we just worked the math out where if you rented for a weekend, we figured out what percentage of profits we're going to give away. So I was telling Lloyd about that. And he's like, oh, that's a really great idea. He's like, why wouldn't you do more of this? And I was like, He's like, you seem super passionate about it. You seem to love it. It gives you a lot of excitement doing these historic buildings, saving them and then helping all these people. He's like, why wouldn't you just try more of that? And I was like, you know what? You're right. Like, why wouldn't I? Like, I really enjoy it. And because, you know, my day job is like buying old tired shopping centers and making them better. And I like it brings jobs back to me and all, but it's like, we paint them all the same color, like our tenants. I mean, it's I always laugh like big lots will be like, I'm like, do you ever want to do a mural? They're like, no, just paint the same color. They're like, we're good. You know? it's like, <laughs> don't break them all. Nothing creative, you know? So the hotels. So I was like, I had never really thought about expanding that business. And so we had started probably giving away 15 or 20% of our profits when we started. Well, then I was like, what if we just gave them all away? What if we just act like, from a PL standpoint, that this business, our hotel business, never existed and we'll just do more hotels? And then over time, you know, we'll get to see that compound where, as long as God gives me on this earth, those hotels will give away money. We have seven inner city partners in Nashville that we support through our hotel business. Okay. And so, anyway, we did that. And then we bought a church and turned it into a hotel. We bought another church and turned it into a hotel. And then we own another church. In Nashville, it will be our fourth hotel.
1: And this is over how long?
0: Well, our first one opened like seven years ago. We didn't open our second one. That was the Rooms
1: for Rooms deal? Yeah.
0: We didn't open our second one until it's been open. Well, (laughs) it actually opened on the day my daughter was born, my middle child. So it's four and a half years old. So there was like a two and a half year lag between our first hotel. And then when we were like, oh, we're going to put some focus on this and try to expand this business.
1: Okay. So, so you have this conversation with Lloyd and he's kind of like, why don't you just do more of this? I want to spend a little time there right now. I guess in hindsight, it's easy to go, well, maybe you just didn't think about doing more of it. But you actually see this when you talk to people around generosity and, and you ask them like, why didn't you just do more of it? There's almost this like limiting belief that it has to stop somewhere. Was there something that he said or unlocked in you or it was like you gave yourself permission to do a lot more of it? Was it? Or just kind of he said it and it made sense.
0: I mean, one of the limiting things was his capital because yeah. th- these these buildings are, and especially if we're going to give all the profits, I'm like, how are we going to solve this math problem? Yep. Because I always laugh, like all of our investors, these are like cool, sexy hotels in Nashville. They're always like, we want in on the hotels. And I was like, you realize we give 100% of the profits away. They're like well, maybe we'll just keep doing the shopping centers. <laughs> 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 I was like, you realize you can give me a million dollars in 10 years later, I'll give you a million dollars back. Like there's no return. I was like, if you want to do it, I'd love you to help us grow this business. But most people want to return on their money. So the capital was like one of the biggest. And I think like I was just busy on the my day job, the shopping center business. And it was just kind of this side hustle. And I was like, but I didn't connect like, oh, we could really grow this, grow the giving, help so many more people. So he just really unlocked that when he said it. It was like one of those moments in life where I'm like, yeah, why don't I do that? Like, yeah. I need to do that. Yeah. You know?
1: Okay. And that's what's called Mission Hotels. That's right. Okay. Did you know immediately that you were going to start buying churches?
0: Well, no. I drove East Nashville is like a cool neighborhood in Nashville. It's, you know, cool restaurants, bar. It's just a great neighborhood in Nashville. And I don't remember why I was driving down the street one day, but there's this really beautiful church. It's now the Russell Hotel, but it literally had a for sale sign in the yard. And I was friends with the broker. I knew her. And I was like, I called her and I was like, hey, what's the story of this church? And she's like, we just put it on the market. I literally put my sign up today. And I was like, how much do they want for it? And she told me, I was like, that's pretty reasonable. But she's like, you're going to have to get it rezoned because a lot of people, I didn't realize this either, but like, these historic churches were all built in residential neighborhoods. So the base zoning is they bought like three residential lots. So no matter what you do with them, you have to get them rezoned. And she's like, it's going to be a fight with the neighborhood. And and she's like, what do you want to do with it? I said, well, you know, we have this hotel downtown. I want to do another hotel. And I was like, can I see it this afternoon? I walked in I was like, Oh my gosh, this would be the sickest hotel ever. It's got these huge, beautiful stained glass windows And the fabric of the building is just beautiful. I was like, as long as the seller, the church will work with me to give me time to get it zoned. Like, I want to do this. I'm going to give away all the profits. So that aligns like, I'm not just like some greedy developer trying to turn into condos and make a bunch of money. I was like, so if you have the right seller, like I'll put in time and energy if they'll do it. And thankfully, they gave me a chance to go get it rezoned. And we ultimately did after a long, hard fight.
1: (laughs) It's always a fight. It's
0: always a fight.
1: And you lease them out market rate, right? That's right. And, but there, are they owned in a nonprofit profit entity?
0: No. I, I Well, if there's any tax attorneys on here, call me. But uh, our lawyers said initially we weren't able to do it because you can't sell a market rate good, which we do, a hotel room, with a competitive advantage. Like if we were a as a non-profit, we wouldn't pay property taxes. And, and arguably, we'd have a competitive advantage over like the Omni in Nashville. Ah, we're currently working on doing a structure where we're like ground lead. There's a way to do it now where we could like have the operating business in one entity, the real estate entity another. And then I would like to turn it into a nonprofit because that would save me hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in property taxes, which would just go to the community. So we're working on it now. And I think next year we'll probably convert it to a nonprofit. But currently they're just single asset LLCs, each one.
1: Okay. So you're buying a church. How do you convert a church to a hotel? <laughs> like, I guess the classroom, like the Sunday school classrooms become rooms. Like, are you doing a lot? Are you adding anything? Are you using, are you working within the existing walls? Are you adding stuff even within the existing walls? How do you convert a church to a hotel?
0: The first one was basically a gut job. Okay. Like We did, we, we did everything we could to save every historic element, but a lot of them we just had to reincorporate our pews for the beds or the old, um, the headboards for our beds are the old pews. So like we did, we reused, but like the church 125 years old. So over time people put drywall and plaster and wallpaper. We ripped all that out, exposed all the old beams and brick, but like pretty much we built a brand new hotel inside of a really cool historic structure. And then our second old church we redid, it actually had some stuff we could reuse old class, like the room sizes worked out, but then we actually built the lobby outside of the old church because they didn't really have a good place to put a lobby where like the russell the lobby is this beautiful like you walk in there's a huge stained glass windows we didn't want to cover them up but because of those it created this really cool lobby because there was no way to not cut up the stained glass windows if we started subdividing it
1: and how many rooms are in these hotels
0: 20-something. Okay. Like So there's 23 at the Russell, there's 25 at the Gallatin.
1: And are they automated or do they usually have full-time people?
0: No. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's hard to run a 20-something room hotel profitably. Yeah. So we've done everything via technology. So it's like, you book a room with us, and we, I hope some of you guys will to support our mission, but like, you're going to get a text the day before. You'll get emails. We'll send you a city guide. Here's everything you should do. We're here to answer questions along the way. My team works remote, so they'll, you know, they're, they're available 24 seven, but like the day before you check in, you'll get a text that says, here's how you get in the hotel. Here's your unique code to get in your room. Check yourself in and out. If you need us, us. If you don't like have a great time in Nashville.
1: And you guys have, he's not BSing. Three of our hotels in Nashville are ranked numbers one, two, and three on TripAdvisor for your category. What's your category?
0: It's called like church uh, hotels. No, <laughs> you're the only three we're, church hotels. We're three. There's three people, and it's all of us. No, it's called like it's called specialty boutique hotels. So there's like 60B in our category. We have the one, number one, two, and three in our category in Nashville.
1: What have you learned about owning hotel? Like, how have you gotten better at at creating hotels? What's something you didn't know when you did the first, that now as you're doing your fourth and fifth, you're like, oh, you got to do this to make them successful. <sighs>
0: I mean, you have to have like, there's, well, I don't, I mean, not everybody knows, but Nashville is like literally one of the hottest hotel markets in the country. Yeah. So like over seven years, I've seen a lot more competitors. So one thing we've learned is you have to have like amazing, like memory points because we'll get buried on Google ad spin because, you know, the Omni in downtown Nashville has a thousand rooms. I mean, there's no way we'll ever rank. So we have to have like things that people will post pictures about online. So like our our marketing budget is grassroots. I mean, we do buy Google ads and stuff, but like I really the way we're successful is you and your wife book a room with us. You your wife comes in and goes, Oh my gosh, that is so cool. She takes a picture, posts it on Instagram, and then five of her friends are gonna end up staying with us. Yeah.
1: Okay. Who comes up with the memory points? You or do you hire that out?
0: We have designers. I mean, I'm very involved. I think it's a ton of fun because yeah. I do have like a creative outlet there, but Really, I mean, my my wife laughs that I spend more time on Pinterest than she does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have one of these projects going, like I'm on Pinterest all the time, just, you know, Googling ideas. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. Send it to our designers. Hey, what do you think? You ever tried this? Could we recreate this? Or what do you, and then they'll tweak it. And so it's a collaboration. Do you
1: do these with your wife?
0: No, I mean, no. She's like, I tell her about stuff and she has ideas, but yeah. she's not day-to-day, day-to-day
1: involved. involved. Okay, then these these things actually make money. Yes. But you don't take it, you give it away. That's right. How do you figure out how to give away money? Sometimes that's the hardest part. It's not always easy to give.
0: That's that's right. Well, there's like a stat that Nashville has like per capita the most nonprofits in America. So like there's tons of places to give. And like anything, I mean not all of them have as much impact with the dollar. So we're we're very vigilant about interviewing them and saying, okay, what's your budget? Tell us about your impact. Because there's tons of good causes, but like we're trying to find the ones that are managing the money the best, having the most impact for the money that we can give. So everything publicly, we start out with homelessness. And then as the financial resources have grown, now we say it's inner city issues. Okay. So we support uh, teen moms. We support workforce training. We support entrepreneurs of color and then we have four homeless partners. So one of them does like a shower. They, they it's cool. They're actually now expanding across the U S but they, they buy these old trucks like box trucks and then convert them into mobile shower units so they can hook up to any city hydrant. And then, you know, a lot of homeless people live under, a uh, underpass, they can pull up, hook up, they can take a shower. And a lot of these people have not had showers in weeks or months. So, but yeah, we've, we've just found different partners and I've had a lot of fun because I am an entrepreneur, like finding the nonprofits. Like we don't give to the really big ones in town. Like we're trying to find them when they're small and then help them grow. And then at some point we'll kind of graduate with them and then find the next one. But that's been a lot of fun for me personally, because it's like when I started my business, the passion, commitment, everything else. But once they become the United Way or the $10 million charity, I just, we're just, we can't make as big an impact to move the needle. You probably have a lot of
1: folks that reach out wanting to receive some of those funds. How do you kind of vet people? If you had to say like, here's the five things we look for to get to a no or to keep talking, like how do you guys go through that process?
0: Well, if it doesn't align with our mission of like NRC, we get we do get tons of people reaching out. If, yeah. if, if it doesn't align with our mission, it's immediate. No, it's like, hey, thanks so much for the good work you're doing in this community, but that's not what we're focused on. If it is something we're focused on, generally, it is a small world like anything. We're calling our current partner saying, hey, we've got the financial resources to add a new partner. Who should we talk to? And they're like, oh, you got to meet with this guy. You know, he's doing unbelievable work he's amazing. Like go meet with him. So that's, that's, we're really finding through word of mouth.
1: But if you find them, especially with the smaller ones, like, is, is there a way to vet them to where, you know, the resource are going to be used, right? Is there a question that you ask or is there something you ask for?
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we're always interviewing like, hey, how much money do you raise a year? Yeah. And then tell us about the impact. Yeah. Now, a couple of our partners, I knew they were committed because they were guys like me and you that had day jobs. Yeah. And they started these charities out of their own pocket nights and weekends. Yeah, And they basically had two full time jobs because the charity wasn't raising enough to pay them. And they were so passionate about it. So one of the fun things we've been able to do with two of them is, is make a financial commitment and say, hey, you guys like you need to leave your job but you have a family to support. So we'll put up this much money over a couple year commitment. That'll give you the resources to quit your day job so You can focus on this full-time because I'm confident you could go grow it. And that's the story with the shower truck guy. Now he's in like four or five markets, but he's a super gifted guy, but he was basically working two full-time jobs, which is hard on a family just because he was so passionate about it. So it's like, once I heard his story, I was like, I'm definitely gonna support this guy. There's no doubt he's going to be a good steward. The guy's doing this for free, taking away time from his family just because he feels so called to do it.
1: And so, how long have you been doing this now? Seven years? Yeah. How has your life changed? I mean, you're only 44 years old, you got a big career ahead of you. How do you, you've kind of set the seeds. How do you think about the next 30 years? Like, how are you making decisions going forward? So that you can continue to be the most generous? Is it continuing to do more hotels? Is it, how do you think about this in the bigger picture of things?
0: Well, I mean, I will tell you six or seven years ago, I was burned out of my day job. Like I had put so much time and energy into it. I wasn't working for a paycheck anymore. It was like, it didn't scratch the itch it did. Like in my late 20s, early 30s, doing a deal was just, That was the greatest thing ever. And then I got to a point where it's like, well, great. We bought another shopping center, been there, done that. I was running out of steam. What this has done since I've refocused all my energy on like, hey, if we can keep growing our business, we'll have way more financial resources to help people. Like I'm excited about my work today. And it's given me, you know, because we always tell our commercial team without the commercial business, there is no hotel business because I have to feed my family. So I always say like, hey, all the good that the the hotel business is doing is because of you guys like it we're all one big team but it's given me a ton of energy cuz we still have tough clients to deal with banks everything else that you and I both deal with and yep. but on days like that like i always encourage my team like tonight in nashville when i leave here i might have to go fill out a report for a bank which is the bane of my existence but i'm like there's going to be somebody getting a hot shower in the shower truck tonight because i did that you yeah. know and i tell them I own the business and probably 30% of my job I don't enjoy. But at this stage in our company, I still have to do some of those things, bank reporting and such. And I just remind myself that there's teen moms, like we're going to buy 50 teen moms tomorrow night, Christmas, for their kids and them because we're doing the hard work. So it gives me a lot of purpose on the days where a client's pissed or they're (laughs) like, our lawyer's going to be in touch. You know, it's like, okay, sorry about the roof. Like we're trying to get it. There's been a monsoon for a week, like the roofer will get there, you know? So, yeah. so that's, it's really given me a lot of energy for the business, which I had frankly run out of.
1: What does you, a lot of the efforts are focused in the inner city, just in general, more educating, like what does the inner city need? Huh. Because you could easily say like, it just needs more money, but that kind of isn't it. There's a lot of social issues. Like you kind of grew up in the inner city you're now 44 years later giving to the inner city and i know it's not a a quick solution but what have you found they need most so a lot of people listening today have lots of resources because i'm going to follow up with well let's just start there like what do people need most
0: well i mean this is scientifically proven but one of the biggest problems in inner city is lack of male influence like they need males involved in their life. So if someone's listening, it's like, hey, I don't have any money, but I got time. It's like, well, they need to be around male influences because, you know, especially in the projects and all, it's like you got the mom, the aunt and the grandmother, but like the dad's ghosted out. And so it's like that's proven. And most of the charities we work with, that's the story. It's like single mom household. So, I mean, of course, you need education. I do believe everybody needs a job. It gives you such purpose in life to actually go make a paycheck, pay your bills. A lot of these people would love to do that. But then if the government's gonna pay them basically what they can get to work, it's like that's a problem. You yep. know, they're not gonna go work their butt off and have to deal with the a bad boss and all these things if they can just literally make the same thing sitting at home all day, sadly. But yep. like one of the charities we're involved with puts gives African Americans an opportunity for entrepreneurship. Their goal is to launch ten thousand. Entrepreneurs of color, and you know it's like the lady who makes great chicken wings, but she's working at Burger King today. They'll help her figure out how do you start a food truck, or how do you start selling out of your backyard to get to the food truck to eventually get a bricks and mortar. So, you know, I think, but and then education. I mean, everybody needs a quality education, and sadly, Nashville, like most larger cities, our public education it's terrible. You have to move to the suburbs to educate your kids, or do private school. And now I am very involved with charter schools, which I do believe is a great opportunity for people in bad areas. And they're actually giving people a decent education. So I'm, that's where I, I don't spend my time volunteering with Davidson County Schools. I, I choose to do the charter schools where we feel like we can actually have an impact and they're privately run. So I don't have to deal. Our company does like um, we'll do this in two weeks, but we we adopt like the, we'll drop the fourth grade of this school and we'll do like a Christmas program for them, bring them presents, bring them school supplies, all that stuff. And like, I tried to do that with Metro Nashville schools. And it was like, you have to go talk to this person and then you have to go do this. It was like the most red day. I was like, I'm banging my head against the wall. I called a charter school. They're like, this is unbelievable. Come meet with us tomorrow and you guys can do whatever you want. You're going to do this. And we're like, yeah, they're like, there's no paperwork, no approval. So I'm like, those are the people I want to work with.
1: How do charter schools work?
0: Well, you know, the, the government puts a value on every student. So I think in Nashville, it's like they say that it costs $9,000 a year to publicly educate a kid because they just take their humongous budget, divide yeah. it by number of kids. Okay, 9000 So what they do, did it laws in Texas has it too, in Tennessee, but you can launch a, a charter school and they'll give you $9,000 for every student that you enroll. Now, they go privately fundraise a little more. Got it. So they can, and then they hire teachers and they push them hard. I mean, I think the burnout rate's three or five years, but they'll get these kids from Teach for America or whatever, super bright kids, huge heart. But they're like, hey, you're going to work 60 hours a week as a school teacher because we we got to get these kids to college. And, yep. you know, and I know a couple of the guys that run the ones in Nashville, and they're like, sadly, for a lot of these kids, the more they can keep them at school, the better their chances are success because their home life is a mess, frankly.
1: Okay. If you're sitting, I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs or folks that might be in a similar situation that just want to go do something. It's, It's kind of what we were talking about at lunch. I'm sure they come to you and they're like, hey, we want to do something similar. And you said part of your mission of being the most generous person is also helping other people become more generous. What are you telling people that might be coming saying, hey, you know, maybe they're not burnt out at their job, but this isn't fulfilling, or I have financial resources, or maybe they don't, but they just want to do more. But maybe they don't already have the Airbnb hotel that you had kind of created along the way that you could kind of just use as a foundation to keep going. They're coming going, I I don't really have much, but I do have this desire to want to do something. How are you guiding people or are you?
0: Well, on a very regular basis, I have this unique... I sit in this unique position, the way I grew up, and now I raise money from very wealthy people. And so, you know, quite often, every year, my investors will call me and say, hey, one day when I sell my business, I'm going to do more of what you do. Like, I'm going to be more generous. And I always say, hey, all due respect, you're not going to do it. They're like... And I always laugh that rich people aren't used to feedback. They're like, "What, what do you mean? And I'm like... You're not going to do it because you're not doing it now. And if you can't do it now, when you have less, you get a hundred million dollars in your bank account. You think it's going to make your life easier, actually have more control of your life. And so I always tell them like, you have to start today being generous. Like I always encourage people, you have to find something you're passionate about. So it might be teen moms. It might be entrepreneurs of color. It might be the humane society. Doesn't matter. I do tell people you have to find something that gets you excited because if it doesn't, It's just going to be like writing a check to United Way. Like, I don't really know who that helped. I think I did some good. But so I always tell my investors, like, give some money, like, research some things about whatever gets you excited. Go to their annual fundraiser, hear the high school kid get up and talk about how this charity changed your life. If that gets you excited, great, get more involved. If it doesn't, go to the next one, you know? But you got to start doing something because I tell them once you do it, you'll get hooked on it. And so like, you'll actually think like a thousand dollars could have been a big steak dinner with clients or it's like, man, that kid got on stage and talked about a thousand dollars changed his perspective on life. I'm like, and then you'll be hooked and then you'll just become more generous because you'll be like, you'll start equating dollars that you're spending on other things to like helping people and it'll just change your whole perspective on life.
1: You said, if you're not already doing it, you're probably not going to do it down the road because when you have a hundred million money will actually control you more. That's, that's a little bit intense. Why would, how does that work? Why would at a hundred, the easy logic would be, oh, you have more to give and it still wouldn't even get into your personal spending. Why is that not actually the case?
0: I've just seen it first. And for any of my investors to listen, you're not the ones I'm about to talk about. <laughs> you're, you're the good ones. It's the other ones. And Thanks. I love you all. But uh, but like, I just have found they get this money. Now they got advisors and accountants. Like everybody's telling them and they think about, it, they got all these investments and I'm doing venture capital and private. Oh, I'm doing real estate. I'm doing all these things. And it's like, do I have enough? Is a hundred enough? And what about the kids? And you know, it's just, the money just gets, the number gets bigger and everybody thinks, oh, it's going to be so much easier to give away when I have more. But it isn't because you didn't start working that muscle. It's like exercising. You have to start working that muscle when you have less. And then by the time you do have the hundred million, generosity is just part of your life. It's like, oh, me and my wife, this is just what we do. Our family's generous. We're teaching our kids to be generous, but it's like, I've just seen it with a lot of my investors firsthand. They get this pot of money and they They're going to write the $5,000 check to the big society event in Nashville, the Swan Ball. And it's like, that's their giving for the year. And it just, they're just not going to give as they get more. I mean, maybe, I'm sure there's rare examples, but I just haven't seen it firsthand if they're not starting those things when they have less.
1: How do you think about it? Your kids are relatively young. I think your oldest is six. That's right. Have they started to, have you you brought them into this world yet? Like, how do you think about doing this with your children especially children that aren't going to grow up the way you grew up
0: no it's my biggest fear is to raise kids like obviously the way that i was raised taught me certain things about life but there's no fooling my kids that we have extra money and so one thing we did last year which i'd highly recommend to anyone is we went to walmart in this small town that's more poor near nashville and we just brought a bunch of cash and we've got our kids to go and just be like, go give this lady a hundred dollars. Like, you know, she was five at the time. I oldest, yeah. the other two are, you know, probably rolling around a Walmart floor. But the five-year-old would be like, go give her the money. And these people just start bawling, crying. And I don't know. I mean, it's gonna become more impactful as they get bigger, but like that's something we'll do every year because as they get bigger, I can teach them life lessons. Cause she'll be like, Why did that person cry? It's like, well because they've probably been praying. They're probably barely could afford food at Walmart that week. And then some random person just gives them $100 out of nowhere. That was an answered prayer, just an encouragement to them. And so I've committed to my wife. When I started this journey through halftime, I'm driven type A. And my wife was very concerned that I was like going to Get so focused on changing the world that I would forget about my wife and kids. And that really was a risk, honestly, because I get so excited about, I can help all these people, but it can take nights, weekends, you know, it could have become a second job. So thankfully, she was honest with me about that. And I said, Well, hey, I'm committed to you. I'll do all my charity stuff between eight and five during business hours. I'll do my meetings. I won't join a bunch of boards. If I join a board, I'll tell them I'm not available for, you know, nighttime board meetings. But as my kids get older, I've told her, like, our deal is if I can take a kid with me, I can go do it. So my intention is, is they're going to go volunteer at the shower truck with me. They're going to go serve meals at the homeless shelter. Like I'm going to try to put them in a bunch of situations where they can be around people that aren't like the kids in our neighborhood, where they'll realize this is not normal. Like this is not the rest of the world. We're so fortunate. We got to be good stewards of this. You know, there's a whole nother world out there where people are just fighting to survive. So that's my plan with kids for now. Good luck. I know. It's, I know. Be, it's a challenge. I mean, you it know, I've talked challenge. about it personally. It's like, it's just so scary because you're like, you do not, you want your kids to be well-adapted humans Yeah. And you, and you
1: can't fake it.
0: You can't. And so it's like, but I've spent a lot of my time interviewing people that have financial means that have well-grounded children. And I'm always asking them like, what did you do right? what did you do wrong?
1: And what are some of the things they say they did right?
0: The consistent thing is they're like, your family has to make some sacrifices. They're like, you and Brick can afford to do a lot of things. Some years it's going to look like going on a really cheap vacation. So they can, the next year you're going to nice, you know, like they realize that like, this is not normal. We just can't fly here and there and go to these fabulous resorts. This is not a normal world. And then the biggest thing they're like, you've got to put them in situations around people that are struggling. And then you got to take them, take your daughter on a date, go, go get Chick-fil-A and then take her down to the homeless mission and serve dinner and be like, Hey, and then the whole way home, you're talking to her going, Hey, that's, that's not, that's a lot of people in our our world. Like that's not just 50 people you saw tonight. Like this is, there's homeless shelters all over the country and there's people, you know, and it's, that's, so that's my plan. But like all the mentors have been like, you just got to keep teaching them and putting them in these situations to realize that like, this is not normal.
1: Yeah, I think that's been the number one thing that I've heard from folks too. Is you gotta, you gotta walk the walk, and you gotta see it. You gotta see it to believe it. That's right. Writing a check and just wiring money and looking the other way is not, you know, it's just not how you learn. That's right.
0: One other thing we're doing with our kids is we're setting up a little charitable foundation for each of them. Where from a young age, we'll let them. I got this idea from a mentor, but like they'll present to the family every year. And say, even, you know, starting my seven-year-old next year, she'll be like, hey, I've chosen to give to this because, you know, I have a friend at school, you know, that has cancer. Or, you know, So we're going to have them present and give them money that they can give away. But they've got to tell us why it's important to them and why they think we should do it as a family. Of course, we're going to say yes, as long as it aligns with our family values. But it'll be good for them to start to learn from a young age about how do you give, How do you make decisions on giving? What gets them excited? So hopefully they'll develop some passions of their own on things that they're excited to give to.
1: I'm not trying to get too in the weeds on this, but I love this idea. Is it a certain amount you're already going to set aside? Is it through and not like, are you setting up some special type of account that you're putting money into or is it? Not been thought through that. No, much.
0: no, I have. Like so in most cities, and I'm sure Fort Worth has like a community foundation. That's what it's called in Nashville, the community foundation in Middle Tennessee. But you can with five thousand dollars set up a, a your own charity. So they'll be like the Lizzie Locker charity and the Rosie Locker and the Eli Locker. So we'll have their own little charity. Okay. And then we'll take some of that money every year and be like, hey, we're gonna give away $2,000 a year and we'll put 2,000 more in it every year. Yeah. You know, and so, but I'm sure in Fort Worth, there's a community foundation or you can Google it. You could use the community foundation in Middleton see if you wanted. You don't have to live in Nashville. But the mission of the community foundation is, is it gives anybody with $5,000 the ability to set up their own nonprofit because they do all your taxes. They do all your accounting. You're actually using their tax ID number but they they privately fundraise from wealthy individuals to underwrite all their own overhead so every dollar you put in your account you get to give out it's super cool so
1: you would call the Fort Worth Community Foundation and say I want to put a want to start an account for each kid that's I'm going to fund it each year and it's free that's right and then your kids would co- or my kids would come to me and say hey this is how we want to give it but that's we agree and then we can go to the account pull that money out and go give it
0: that's it, it. You just like send them an email or, you know, I'm probably going to physically take my kids down there and go, hey, because it will teach them. It's like, you know, I, I, I've i been friends with the Community Foundation, people forever. it's like, hey, Lizzie will be like, hey, I want to give to X," and they'll like give her a little check or whatever, you know, and make it a big deal, make it fun for them.
1: Why do you think people that often have a lot of money don't want to give?
0: I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I think a lot of people have bought into this myth of. How much is enough? We're gonna run out of money. What if we live toward 99? Like, oh gosh, our financial advisor says we have enough to get to 97. If we live to 99, like what are we gonna do? It's like, well, there's a great book called Die With Zero, which I highly recommend. But he he talks about like even middle to lower income Americans end up with more money in their bank account when they die. Like, so they rob themselves of all these experiences because they wait too long. I mean, you hear people, all, I'm going to, one day I'm going to do this. One day I'm going to go hike this. I'm going to do this. Well, they might not live that long, frankly. They might not have their health at that point. And they're always saving. And there's, there's a lot to be said for like saving for a rainy day, but most people rob themselves of experience because they're just worried. And I see that with people with nine figure net worths. I mean, it's like, they don't know how much is going to be enough. What if there's a recession? What if the stock market drops 50%? It's like, you're still going to be fine. (laughs) (laughs) You might just have to sell the jet. (laughs) Yeah. So I think in general, what I've found is everybody wants to be generous. They just haven't found something that they're passionate about where they're like, okay, that was worth it. And then I just think that they just didn't realize they're going to be okay. You know, especially the high income earners, it's like they're going to end up with tons of money, the power of compound interest. It's just they're not going to run out of money. So they need to start giving some of it away.
1: Why do you think it's often that poor people are more generous than rich people?
0: I think because they just realize like they have enough money to meet their basic needs and they realize they're going to be fine. And so I don't think they're not worried. They don't have a stock account. They're not worried about investing. They're just like they have this much money and then their friend's car breaks down. They need $100 to fix it. They're like, well, this month, you're lucky I had $100. Like, take it. I think because they've also been the recipient. And that's part of my story. Like, I didn't just come up with, oh, I'm going to be just generous. Part of my family's story was is people consistently showed up for us. and a lot of the giving that we do as a family is anonymous and the reason is is because my mom would pray like the air conditioner out god we need a thousand dollars it is we're sweating to death it's 100 memphis you know heat index is like 150 it's the highest place on earth (laughs) besides el paso probably (laughs) but you know and then literally i have a little charity fund i did in honor of my mom it's called the magic mailbox because we always joked as kids that my mom had a magic mailbox because like it'd be two weeks later my mama come in, bawling, crying. She'd have a wad of cash in her hand. And we're like, mom, she couldn't even talk. She's so emotional. We're like, mom, what in the world? Where did you get all the money? She's like, it was in our mailbox. We're like, in the mailbox? <laughs> and we're like, who gave it to us? She's like, it was in an unmarked envelope. We're like, who gave it to us? She said, God gave it to us. And we're like, no, who literally gave it to us? God didn't put it in there. She's like, well, I've been praying to God and somebody did. So he must've told him to do it. But like. That was so powerful because the power of anonymous giving is, this was my experience. If Dr. Jones from church, if I knew, if it said, hey, we've been thinking about you guys, we felt called to do this, love Dr. Jones, then we're going to go to church next Sunday and be like, Dr. Jones, thank you, man, it's so hot. (laughs) You saved us. But like, we really believe God gave it to us and we didn't owe anybody a favor. We didn't feel guilty about it where we would have been like the little kids, oh, there's Dr. Jones, go thank him, please. He gave us the HVAC. We're just like, we didn't have anybody to thank other than God. So it's, you know, that's what we've chosen to do a lot of our giving. Our company does it publicly just, you know, to to support the mission of being generous and all, but like our, a lot of our personal giving, we do anonymously.
1: Okay, here we go. So how does the magic mailbox work? How do you know where you're going to give it?
0: Well, what I've done is, so like I went to the pastor at my church. He said, "I think this is great," but he said, "I'll be honest. Most people here have some catch net an uncle, a cousin. Like they don't ever make it to the pastor's church and be like, the HVAC is out." So I was like, "Well, if my church didn't," do it. so I I came up with the idea to start working with inner city pastors because the people in that community don't have a rich uncle, rich cousin. Like they they got nobodies. They end up in the pastor's office saying. My utilities are getting shut off tomorrow. The kids are going to be freezing. What do I, can you pray for me? Do we, you know, does the church help? And so we've partnered with like intermediaries in the inner city. Those guys will call me and say, hey, can you call NES and pay 550 bucks? We got a single mom that's getting her power shut off tomorrow. I'm like, done, got it, you know? So that's what I've done. And I'm not vetting these people. I'm like, if the pastor calls me and says, do it, we're going to do it, you know? So, We've just tried to find the people that have access to the people that have like unbelievable need. And there's plenty of them out there.
1: And you said you did that, the intermediaries. Yeah, so like there's, the, there's yeah. folks you can call or that you can hook up with that have connections into the inner city that can help on kind of what I'd call rifle shots, one-off situations.
0: That's right. So like I'm real involved with Young Life, which is a high school ministry, and they have like an inner city division. So I was friends with the guy that runs inner city for young life. And so I, he was my first guy. I said, Hey, who should I give to? And and do you ever have kids, you know, high schoolers who's, and he's like, yeah, I do. But he's like, you need to go meet with this pastor and this pastor. So he kind of helped me build a network of people that are in the trenches, in the rough neighborhoods that would have the needs for our family to help. And we've gotten so much joy from it. Britt and I just love it. I've always said, like, I believe that God had a bigger vision for my life than I did. I was not like, I feel like when you grow up with no money, you go two directions. You're either obsessed with money and security, or you realize how little money in life it takes to be happy. And thankfully, I've fallen out that way. And so it's just been fun for me to be able to do all these things, but I didn't like envision, like, oh, one day I'm going to be set and I can, you know, do whatever I want financially. So I've taken that as a huge responsibility in my life to steward. No, I don't have the resources a lot of your listeners have, but I have the resources that God chose to give me, and I'm trying to steward those very well.
1: God, I want to go on that. Like, can you just, is it easy to meet those kind of connectors into the inner city? Is that that something like the community foundation, or you just have to know people to know people?
0: I think if you called the Fort Worth Community Foundation and said, hey, who's doing a Who's like a legit person? Because there are some like any things, you know, there's people that aren't. But like, I think if you called them or... The person that runs the YMCA here or whatever and said, who's an inner city pastor or inner city nonprofit person who's straight up, wants good for the people, will help them. They know those people. And then you'll meet one guy and he'll be like, oh yeah, this is super cool. Yeah, you ought to meet this guy. And that, you know, they'll kind of pass you around. Yeah. But like, it's easier to find like anybody that's listening in their town can call whoever kind of the nonprofit hub in your town is and be like, hey, who's doing good work? And then just go meet with them and See what you think of them and you, you'll get the sense of whether they're like straight up people or if you think that something shady's is going on
1: as it relates to your mother and the magic mailbox do you have any inclination of how that did arrive
0: my guess has always been at the church is somebody at the church knew that we were poor and my mom probably did a prayer request or something you know or they yeah. could just sense it on her i mean she had a lot on her plate, you know, and so they probably knew they might not know the air, air was out, but they probably knew just like seeing her at church, dragging five little kids around that she needed some help. But I mean, that's always been my guess. We've never found out. And recently I've been like, I need to track down this lady we got this house from and fly to Alaska and tell her, thank God bless you, because tell that literally life. changed my life. I told my mom that recently. I was like, we got to find this lady. Like, she'd be in her 70s now. She doesn't know. She has no way to know the impact that had on us.
1: She's in some igloo out in Alaska, (laughs) just freezing her ass off. Hopefully she's a listener. (laughs) If this
0: story sounds familiar, Germantown, Tennessee. Call us. (laughs) Birch Tree Avenue.
1: (laughs) Call us. Do do you have a, a stance on, you know, some people feel like they have to give dollars over oceans instead of just across the street or in their own backyard? Do you have any thought about that?
0: It's a great question. I would have answered this definitely a couple of years ago, but when you go through halftime, they make you kind of think about like, is your ministry going to be local, regional, national, or international? And Britt and I, I've been in Nashville 20 years. My wife's been there for 13 or 14 years. So we're like committed. We're going to raise our kids there. Like that's our new hometown. So we both were like, there's a ton of need in Nashville. Of course, there's need in Haiti and Africa and all these places. But we live in Nashville. We're going to raise our kids here. Hopefully, our grandkids. Like, so we've felt very called to to give all of our resources to Nashville. In the last couple of years, I've had mentors that are like, help me think differently about that. I mean, the power of the dollar in foreign countries is just unbelievable. I mean, we we partner with an organization building houses in Africa for 4000 bucks, and it can change, you know, nine or 10 people's lives. Like you can't build a house in America for four grand. So we have started giving more internationally. But most of our giving is still focused on Nashville. But I think for different listeners, it's like they might be passionate about their old hometown or the U.S. or a country they've vacationed in. It doesn't matter. You just got to pick something.
1: Let's finish on halftime. you brought it up like 10 times. Lloyd's was on the episode. Pete, who's near and dear to me, has been through it and works, runs a forum. But like, what is halftime? To you and kind of what brought you there and what what was it like going through it
0: well i'm eternally grateful for halftime i mean it was just the perfect book in the perfect season but like so the way i ended up doing halftime was i read the book i went to this men's group and i was like 25 years old and i heard a man speak and he meant i'm a big reader and he's like oh halftime this book changed my life and when i was 25 i read it and I remember thinking when I was 25, I was like, maybe one day in my 50s or 60s, I'll have like enough financial margin where I can do something other than work all the time. So fast forward till six years ago, I you know, had all this stuff going on. My brother passed away. I have a child. I had a bunch of stuff going on at work. And I was talking to a guy that mentors me in Charlotte, North Carolina named Tim Sediman. I was like, man, I think I'm going to sell my business. And he's like, really? I thought you enjoyed it and seemed like things were going great. And I said, well, the business is frankly killing it, but I think I just need to, I'm going to, I've got all this stuff going on. I think I'm going to exit right, take a year off, think, pray about what I'm put on this earth to do and just reset my whole life. It seems like the only way I have a situation I'm in is to just sell it, be done with it, and then figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And he's like, you need to write a book called Halftime. And I was like, yeah, he's like, you ever heard of? I said, dude, I read that when I was 25. He said, you need to reread it. I think you're in halftime. And so I got it, reread it that weekend. And I felt like Bob Buford had literally written it for me. I think it's just how God works. But I just read the book and I was like, it just was like every page. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like where I am. And so I'd signed up for the program whenever their next class was starting. And it really just helped me kind of have a new perspective because I felt like a lot of books I'd read in my life said, You have to sell your business, move to a foreign country, live in a hut and be a missionary. And I have always enjoyed business. I mean, my wife laughs, we go to the beach and she's reading some, you know, historical novel and I'm reading like Fortune magazine or something like I like business. I read business books. I just really have always felt wired and I didn't feel like I needed to get out of business and run a nonprofit. But I was like, I thought that was the only thing. I either had to be a business guy or like a nonprofit guy. And what the... The book's good, but I always remind people that was just Bob's story. Like he was just this wealthy business owner. Anybody can go through halftime. Don't think the book is just like the only way. That was just Bob's personal story. But the program is much bigger on like, you could be a middle manager at a huge corporation and decide like you're called to stay there and start a group for people in the inner city to get disadvantaged people to come work at the corporation or whatever gets you excited. But that's what halftime really helped me was like, why was I put here? What could I do? How can I use this business for impact? And Lloyd is still my coach six years later. I have a monthly call with him and Lloyd's helped me just a ton, like putting together a plan, checking every month, talk about it, tweak it every year. We kind of write out our life map and, and it, it changes every year. Some years like I need to focus more on my mirrors. And it's like, now my kids are getting older. I'm in there more of that season. So it's like every year we're just kind of evolving my plan, but just having the accountability and the monthly check-in of like, how are you doing? What, what are you working on? How'd you do since last month? Last month, you said you were excited about trying this with your wife. Like, did it work? You know, so it's just giving me a lot of accountability and it's really just helped me. And then, the greatest thing of halftime, like Pete's a friend of mine as well. And like, I would have never met Pete if it wasn't half time halftime. But pretty much anybody that's gone through the program, you can call, say, hey, I'm thinking about starting a soup kitchen in the inner city. They'll be like, what will say, oh, call John. He did that in Tulsa. And you'll call John and be like, hey, I'm thinking about this. How did it work out? How should I do it? How much money did it cost? Like, you know, so it's this, the network has been amazing because there's a lot of ideas I've had that I thought, and then I've like talked to somebody who's already tried it or is currently doing it. And I'm like, eh, that doesn't seem like a good fit for me. Yeah. And it saved me a lot of tuition because I would have just written a check, try to start a new nonprofit. And then it's like, uh, two years later I'd be shutting it down because it would be like, well, that wasn't exactly what I thought I was getting into.
1: So. And why it's called halftime is, is basically because you're making decisions now that'll set you up for the second half of your life. Like go back to what the meaning of halftime is.
0: I mean, well, when Bob wrote the book, he he, the tagline is from success to significance. Traditionally, people have been in their fifties or sixties or even seventies when they've gone through the program or whatever, and they're people that are like coming to the end of their career, and they're like, "But I'm still healthy. I still have energy. I'm sixty years old. I've just sold my business. What do I do with the next twenty or thirty years?" Recently, there's been more young people, uh, you know, that go through the program. They're like, "Hey, I'm not selling my business. I'm going to keep working." I just don't want to focus 50 hours a week on running a business. Like there's got to be more to life than find the next shopping center. Yeah. And so that's really kind of what it's evolved to.
1: You think it's younger? Cause probably in this country, people are now have access to make money earlier in life than they historically had.
0: Totally. And I think especially this new generation coming along, there's such a need for people to have purpose in their work where like our parents were just, working a job for 40 years. And, you know, you're just glad to have the job. It's like now, especially with, you know, there's so much information out there. People are like, no, I want to be fulfilled at work. I want to like find some value from my work. And I think that really feeds into halftime. There's got to be more just to make in mind.
1: Do you have any, uh, we'll kind of bring it home on, you've built a life around generosity. It's going well. Does that create any new dreams for you or are you now feeling like you're living in the dream that you wanted does that make sense (laughs) yeah does it create another level to this
0: i mean it's definitely added significant value to my life but like i was telling you at lunch i'm I'm almost 44 got three young children enjoy my job but like i'm balancing all those things like being a good husband being a good dad trying to give back trying to figure out like What's fair budget for my family? What do we spend on our family? What do we give away? You know, what do we put back in the business? So I'm, I'm still kind of trying to figure out what gets me excited. Like this is definitely done a ton for me personally, but I'm also young and Lord willing, I have 40 or 50 years left. And it's like, I don't know, like, but I also hold things loosely and it's like, I didn't plan to be sitting here today at 43. So I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to be doing at 53. Yeah. I'm just going to be faithful every day and try to show up, try to do the things that bring me joy and then be open-handed about new. I mean, I never would have imagined I'd own hotels that gave money away, but it's been a ton of fun doing it, but I'm sure there'll be a next thing at some point that gets me excited where it's like, this is where I'm going to dedicate more of my time and energy.
1: Micah, you're the man.
0: Ah, Thanks, Prince. Honored to be here.
1: Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.